Our Heavenly Father, as we consider your holy word now, fill our minds with your light and truth. Fill our hearts with love and trust. Deliver us from hardness of heart and enable us to joyfully submit to your Son. We pray these things for the glory of your name. Amen. Longing for an intervention. Longing for an intervention. Uh, I wonder if you have seen that uh, very popular series of movies called The Hunger Games. Uh, I was a bit slow in, uh, in watching those uh, movies, but uh, they, when you do actually see them, they are rather disturbing, aren't they? Uh, the whole premise of the movies is that you have these uh, powerful people who are oppressing the weak and exploiting them, where, where killing is uh, celebrated as a form of entertainment, uh, and the greeds of some fuel the poverty and destruction of others. It's a very uh, confronting and disturbing uh, set of movings, movies. Uh, and I think one of the things that disturbs me most as I watch those movies is actually they're reasonably close to reality um, in many respects. Uh, we do live in a world where very often world leaders use their, their power to establish their own comfort uh, and they do so at the expense of people. We do live in a world where killing is sometimes celebrated, a world that is full of brokenness. And uh, we long, I guess, for God to, to intervene and to, to fix up the, the injustice and the corruption and the poverty that uh, we see in our world. And it's not just the wickedness that we want God to fix up, but of course it's the brokenness of the world as well. It's now nearly two years of this pandemic, and I'm sure that uh, we've, we've been praying every week, God will intervene, God will put an end to the pandemic, that we'll be able to return back to uh, a, a normal life, whatever that uh, looks like uh, in the future. We long for God to come, to, to, to intervene in our world, to fix up the problems that we see, and to establish a world of light and righteousness, and hope. Now, of course, in the Hunger Games, uh, the leader that uh, saves the day comes from a very unexpected quarter, isn't it? It's uh, Katniss Aberdeen, if you remember, the young girl from Section 12 who's just fighting initially for her own life. Well, today in this passage, Luke is at pains to show us that God has, in fact, intervened in our world. He has given us the king that we need, who will address the problems that we see all around us. But it's not as we expect it to be. And the challenge for us today is whether we can see his intervention and we are willing to believe it. Well, last week, if you remember, uh, we saw that uh, God's intervention in our world began with the predictions of the birth of, of John. John was to be a great prophet who was to prepare the way before the Lord, uh, before the Lord came to save his, his people. And uh, at one level, if you compare this passage here to the, the birth of John the Baptist that just happens earlier in this chapter, there's a lot of similarities between the two. Uh, in both, the angel Gabriel appears 
and someone's shaking in fear. Uh, in both, he promises the birth of a child and he gives their name. Uh, he explains how they're going to fulfill the scriptures in a significant way. He gives a sign that it's really going to take place and, and, and then he leaves. And so in a sense, Luke wants us in this passage to compare the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus and, and the response of Zechariah and the response of Mary. Well, it, uh, it, it begins with uh, three important differences between John and Jesus. Let's pick it up in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Well, notice the three important differences here between John and Jesus. The first time uh, the angel appeared to Zechariah was in the temple, but now this is, this is a young woman in a small kampung town named Nazareth in, in Galilee. It's a place that most people had probably never heard of. And, and secondly, this time the angel is not appearing to a, a righteous priestly family, but he's, uh, he's, he's appearing to this kingly family. Mary is engaged to Joseph, who is of the line of David. And, and thirdly, this is not just appearing to a barren woman, Elizabeth, but now to a virgin, Mary. There's stark differences, and it invites us to reflect a little bit why these differences are here. Why is Jesus born in Nazareth? Why must he be from the house of David? And why must he be born of a virgin? And to find the answers to those questions, we have to go back to uh, the Old Testament. Uh, because Luke is showing us in his gospel how Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament promises. And the prophet Isaiah, over 600 years earlier, had promised that a little child would be born who would bring in the kingdom of God and save his people, and he would be born of a virgin. Well, uh, let's pick up with this uh, name, Gabriel. It's very rare for the, an angel's name to be named in the Bible. Uh, the only other place where Gabriel is mentioned is in the book of Daniel, chapter 8. And the book of Daniel is all about the kingdom of God. Israel's exiled among the nations, but God's going to suddenly intervene and establish his everlasting kingdom ruled by the divine son. And so now as Gabriel turns up, then we know that the kingdom God had promised is just about to arrive. And he comes to Galilee. Now, if you go back to the book of Isaiah, uh, we find that that is the place where God's, uh, God's saviour king uh, would come from. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9 says this, In the latter time he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is given, to us a son is given. So God is going to bring his people out of the darkness, out of the darkness of death, out of the darkness of his judgment, and notice the place where this salvation is going to dawn. It's going to dawn in Galilee, the very place where Jesus is going to grow up and do his ministry. Well, the second, the second difference then, well, why, why must he be born of the household uh, of, of David? Well, 
again, God had made this promise in Isaiah chapter 9. I'll, I'll read on in that passage. To us the Son is given, the government shall be on his shoulder, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So Isaiah talked about this divine king who would come and establish God's eternal kingdom. And this king would descend from, from David. He'd sit on the throne of David. And so Jesus is descended from David. Well, why a virgin? Well, again, if we go back to the prophet Isaiah, and this time chapter 7, we'll also see that the sign that God gives that this, this salvation, this kingdom is going to arise, is that the virgin will give birth to a child. Let me read Isaiah 7 verse 14. It says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We sang about it in that last song. That wording is almost identical to what we see in verse 31 here. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. So with these three differences, Luke is wanting us to see very clearly that God has intervened. The one he promised long ago in the Old Testament, the one who will bring salvation to a world under God's judgment, who will bring in his everlasting kingdom. Well, it's all dawned in the coming of the Lord Jesus. Well, that forces us then to reflect more on Jesus' unique identities. It's the second point, Jesus' unique identity. And have, having appeared uh, to uh, Mary, Gabriel brings this message from God in verse 28. The angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Again, there's a contrast with John here uh, in, in the greeting. Uh, this time it says, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. You have found favour with God. It's a, it's a remarkable greeting, isn't it? It's no wonder that Mary is uh, rather taken aback when she's greeted uh, in this way. Uh, but unfortunately, these words have been uh, misunderstood, especially in Roman Catholic circles uh, along uh, through the ages. Uh, so they take this, uh, these words, O favoured one, the Lord is with you, you found favour with God, uh, to suggest that uh, we should adore and worship Mary, right? that, that she was the mother of God, so therefore she must have been sinless, and because her, because her child was sinless, and so she must have merited this privilege in some way by her, by her righteous life, which is being affirmed here by, by the angel Gabriel. And so we should pray to her and adore her and worship her and name churches after her and, and, and all of these kinds of things. And I think that really misses the point of this passage very greatly. Because that word favor in the Greek, it just means grace. Right? And grace is an undeserved gift a generous provision that's not merited and not earned, but given by God nevertheless. I think Mary would be very appalled if she knew that, well, or appalled that people worship her instead of her son that she was called to bear. 
So the real focus of this passage is, is Jesus, and that's where we will shift our focus now. Who is Mary's child? And, and I guess when a child is born, uh, we, always wonder, we always imagine what they're going to be like uh, when, they, when they grow up. I, I know for my own children, they've all got unique personalities. It's like we haven't parented them any differently, but each of them is, is very different. We, we always think, oh, how's this child going to turn out to be? How's this child going to, to, to turn, out, uh, turn out to be? So you look at this one, the sparkle in their eyes, we think, well, they're going to be really smart, or this one's going to be really pretty, or this one's going to be really sneaky, or, uh, or whatever yeah, it might be. And uh, one of the most significant things, I guess, is uh, as we think about who we want our ch- children to be is what we name them, isn't it? Uh, names are very significant. And here we're given Jesus' name. He is to be named. He's going to be called Jesus. Uh, Jesus, as we saw in the introductory sentence, that name means God saves. And Mary's child would be the one who would save the world from sin. That's why he's named Jesus. But, well, then we're told that he will be Great. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So John the Baptist was called great before the Lord. Moses and Mordecai are called great men of God in the Old Testament. Abraham is promised a great name, but simply to be called great like this. Well, that was a title that reserved only for God and for his his king. Now, we saw that in the Micah reading, the Old Testament reading this morning. It said this, verse 4, He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Mary's child is going to be great because he's the Messiah. He's God's king come to save his people and usher in his kingdom. So we've seen his, his name. His name means God saves. We've seen uh, his greatness. Uh, he's going to be the king. And, uh, and then we see his rule. And uh, let me read on. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So this, uh, this term, Son of God, then, uh, uh, it's actually a, it's a title, right? It's it's a bit like uh, uh, you know putra, datul, these kind of of things. Uh, a, a title that means uh, God's chosen king, the one who would rule over God's kingdom forever. It goes back to the to the book of two Samuel chapter seven. Uh, God says there about David's son. He says this. When your days are fulfilled, you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So according to the Old Testament, the Son of God was going to be the king who would rule over God's kingdom forever who would defeat all God's enemies, who would usher in peace and stability, who'd rule with justice and truth and meekness and loving kindness. 
Now imagine a leader like that, isn't it? That would be amazing, isn't it? One who really loved and cared for the people. A kingdom where there's no more corruption or selfishness or greed. That's King Jesus. That's the kingdom that he's come to bring. He's the son of God. He's come to bring in the perfect rule of God and to restore blessing to our world. How will he actually do that? Well, of course, the reason we celebrate Christmas is because of Easter. If there was no Easter, we wouldn't uh, bother to celebrate Christmas. We celebrate the birth of Jesus because of the death of Jesus. How do we see Jesus rule ultimately? We see it as he dies on the cross. As he dies on the cross, there's a sign above his head, the king of the Jews. He's got a crown of thorns on his head. There's the mocking. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And the centurion cries out, truly this was the son of God. In other words, Jesus is shown to be the son of God supremely in his death. Because it's as he dies that he saves the world from sin and he establishes that perfect kingdom of God. I guess when we long for God to to intervene in our world right now, we, we long for him to, I guess, bring an end to our immediate problems, don't we? We, we want the pandemic to be over, uh, no more sickness, no more death. We don't want any more conflict uh, with, with people around us. We long that as we, we, you know, we open uh, the Star News on our phone or uh, the newspaper that it actually has some good news uh, for once instead of, of, of floods or whatever it may be. And I guess there's certainly a right wish in that, isn't it? It's right to long for health. It's right to long for an end to, to poverty and conflict. But Jesus' intervention is, is a bit unexpected to us then because he comes to do more, much more than that. He comes to restore our relationship with God and bring us into God's kingdom. I mean, I wonder if you think that is the greatest need that you need God to intervene and fix. Now, some years ago when I was at Sydney Airport, I, uh, my flight was delayed and so I got chatting to a Malaysian auntie uh, who was sitting next to me. Uh, her whole family was, uh, was Christian. Uh, they'd shared the gospel with her, but she thought that she didn't need Jesus for herself. She said uh, only people with bad principles need Jesus. And she already had good principles. And so she was quite fine without him. And, you know, I tried to explain to her that she was terribly mistaken. Uh, she was like a child who thought that it was okay never to talk to their parents, uh, that she had no relationship with God. And even if she had good, good, even with her good principles, she was never meeting God's perfect standard. But it just didn't seem to sink in. See, if we're to understand why the coming of Jesus is such good news, we need to understand that we're not good people, that, that actually we're all, we're all sinners who've fallen short of his standard. So the reason why our world is in such a mess, why there is corruption and, and, and greed, why there is sickness and death, is because we live in a world that's under the judgment of God, God's judgment on our sin. And without our sin being dealt with, then those other things can't be taken away either. 
And that's why God's intervention in our world is so unexpected and yet so wonderful. Because Jesus comes to deal with the real problem in our world. He comes to die on the cross, to be raised as king, to rescue us from judgment, and then to bring us in to the perfect kingdom of God. The kingdom where there will be one day no more sickness, no more death, no more sin, and no more sorrow. Well, this morning, do you know what it's like to be in the kingdom? Do you know what it's like to be saved from the judgment of God? You will only know that joy as you recognize your own need for a savior and your own need for a perfect kingdom that is much greater than anything in this world. Well, Jesus' unique identity, the savior king. And, uh, and finally, Jesus' miraculous conception. Jesus' miraculous conception. Uh, understandably, Mary is a little taken back. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin, and the angel's explanation is simple but rather profound. She, he says in verse 35, The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the child is going to be conceived not by Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important that we correct here the misunderstanding some have about this passage. Uh, people from some other religions think, that we call Jesus the Son of God, then what we mean is actually that God had sex with Mary and produced a child called Jesus. They call it blasphemous, and understandably so. It rather is, isn't it? But that's not what we mean, is it? When we call Jesus the Son of God, we don't mean that the gods had sex with human beings and produced a kind of God-human child. Now, that's what the Greeks believed. That's what the Romans believed. But that's not what Christians believe. Luke avoids those connotations very carefully. Look at verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. There's no notion here of a sexual act between God and Mary or something like that. Again, it's an allusion to the Old Testament. By saying the Holy Spirit's going to come upon her, it's, it takes us back to creation, where God created Adam and then breathed his Holy Spirit into Adam and made him a living being. And, and, and it's an allusion back to the, to the tabernacle and the temple where, where God's glory came and, and, and overshadowed the tabernacle, filled it as a sign of God's, God's presence. So it's not saying that God had sex with Mary. What it's saying, though, is that, well, Jesus is, is divine. He is he's supernatural. He's, he's God with us, Emmanuel. He's the second person of the Trinity. And, and that's why he can be called great, like God is. That's why his rule is forever. He's God incarnate, God in human flesh. Now, perhaps we're left wondering, well, this whole virgin birth thing, it sounds rather bizarre. Um, we don't see too many virgin births happening today, I take it. I mean... Uh, I guess if you know one of the, the youths walked into to, to church rather pregnant this morning, then we might raise our eyebrows a little bit about what might have, uh, might have happened. But we're not meant to write this off as a fairy tale. 
Uh, look how the angel continues in verse 36. He says, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. So in the end, whether or not you believe in a virgin birth depends on who you think God is. Do you think that God is all-powerful? That he's in control of everything in this world? I mean, if God can speak and creation comes into being, if he can create Adam and Eve from the dust, breathe his spirit into well, then it shouldn't be difficult for a virgin to give birth to a child, does it? Nothing's impossible to him. It's only if you reject the idea of an all-powerful, all-knowing God that, this would, that miracles like this would seem impossible. Now, remember who's writing this, of course. It's written by Luke. Uh, he's writing as, an, as a historian from eyewitness accounts of what actually happened. And other parts of the Bible tell us that Luke was a, was a doctor himself. He, of all people, would have known this was unusual. But Luke writes this, not because it was made up, but because he thought it happened. And he knew the profound significance of this for humanity. We live in a dark and gloomy world, a world of sin and death, of suffering of relationships that are broken, of unfulfilled dreams, of pain and tears. But at Christmas, we celebrate God's wonderful intervention. He sent his son into this gloomy world to save us from our sins, to bring us into his perfect kingdom. God came to be with us. So the question we're left with is the same question that Mary was faced here. Will we believe this? Will we believe this? Remember when the angel came to Zechariah, what was his, what was his response? He, he was unbelief, do you remember? And then he was unable to speak until John the Baptist was born. How does Mary respond? Verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary believed the promises of God. She believed that her son would be who the angel said, and so she was blessed. And that's, that's the question for us this morning. Do we believe in the Lord Jesus? Do we believe that God has intervened in our world? Do we believe that God has dealt with our biggest problem and therefore he will one day deal with all of our problems? Do we believe that God's eternal kingdom has already been ushered in by the Lord Jesus? Mary believed. What about you? Well, if we believe, it will make a dramatic impact on how we look at the world, isn't it? If God has already intervened, then we can look through the, the problems of this world with great hope. We don't need to see all the solutions, everything fixed up in this world now. We know that it will be fixed up in the end by the Lord Jesus. And so we can submit our lives to him now in faith and hope. Mary says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. 
She submits to God. She's willing to take her part in his plan. What we do live in a world that's often marked by gloom and sin. God has intervened in an unexpected way. Do you see it? Will you submit to Jesus as King? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone in this world where there is so much suffering and pain. We thank you that you have already intervened in sending your Son, Jesus. You have dealt with the root cause of all our sufferings by sending Jesus to die on the cross. And Lord, we thank you that he is our King, that he has ushered in the kingdom of God, that one day there will be no more sickness, no more suffering, no more death. Thank you, Lord, for this hope and this joy. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to believe, just as Mary, just as Mary did, that your word is true. Help us to submit to Jesus as our King and to set our hope on his kingdom. Even when those around us think we're foolish, and even when this world is in so much trouble, strengthen our faith and help us to live as your servants. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.